Well, good morning. This past week, I heard part of a TED Talk. That those are brief little talks about some subject, very focused talks. It was by a global economist. And the aim of his talk was to remove the consideration of human rights from economic planning. There was this major economic uh, forum happening every year, and so this was being played. And so to that end, he argued that the concept of innate human rights, the value, inherent value of a human being, belongs to the realm of fiction, things made up. He, he equated human rights to ideas of God and good and evil, love. He says that they're not material. Those are things that are not testable. So they're, they're in the realm of the made up. You can imagine what he was, this was going to justify setting aside the inherent value of human life. Well, while his conclusion was clearly wrong, we reject that outright, he was correct to connect human rights and the inherent value of human beings, the essential value of human life, to God. That was a right connection. It is true. I mean, for him, if, if humans can, if we can clear away right and wrong, we can clear away conscience and accountability to God, then the strong can rule. They can set the world in order to their liking. But the truth, the idea of the sacredness and the value of all human life has been one of the most impactful gifts of God through His church for the blessing of the world. The church has blessed the world with this truth. It's been the single most restraining influence on violence and war for the last 2,000 years. And wherever that idea has taken root, and it hasn't taken root everywhere, societies have become more just. The lives of women, children, the poor, whole classes of people have improved because they're inherently valuable. That comes from God through the church to the world. That was nowhere part of the assumption of other cultures. But we in the kingdom of Christ, we also know that valuing human life, it's just a glimpse. It's a first step into the abundant life that God has designed for his beloved creation. It's just a glimmer. So this is Sanctity of Life Sunday. So as we join in celebrating Sanctity of Life Sunday, we are simultaneously thanking God for the gift of life, the inherent value of life, but we're also keeping our eyes on the hope of eternal life that he's given us and that he has made secure for everyone, anyone who will receive it. That there's more, there's abundant life that he offers. So through Epiphany, we're looking at the reality of being in Christ and enjoying the wonderful benefits of the new identity, the abundant life that he's given us. And one of the passages of Scripture, in all of Scripture, that speaks most powerfully to this is the opening of Paul's letter to Ephesus. That's where we'll be. Ephesus, Ephesians, we'll be in Ephesus. <laughs> Hearing the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1. Paul wrote them this letter because regardless of their background, 
They needed encouragement to live in this new identity that they've been given, the new identity in Christ. It was of central importance in Ephesus to those Ephesian Christians. So let's consider their situation a moment. Let's hear what the Lord said to them through Paul, and let's hear it for us as well. At the time of Paul's writing, uh, Ephesus was a mixed population, and the church was of mixed Jewish and Gentile origin. We read about this in Acts chapter 19, how that church came to be dramatically. People responded to God's powerful working. Uh, For some reason, God chose to demonstrate power and grace there in uh, stunning ways. Paul preached for two years in Ephesus. And the Holy Spirit healed the sick, freed people from demonic possession, um, set people free from slavery to the occult, from magic practices. This is the the church you'll remember where uh, those who were convicted of sin came and they brought books of magic spells and they burned them and it, it, it was worth thousands and thousands of equivalent dollars. It was so dramatic that it and disrupted life in Ephesus. Big city, 200,000 people in Ephesus at the time. Like Boise five years ago. You remember that? (laughs) That's a big city in the ancient world. Uh, And the whole life of that city was disrupted because of the growth of the church and what was happening. It was evident to all. So noticeable that the artisans who served the temple there, we'll talk more about that, got together, they rioted, and they demanded that the civil authorities do something about this. The government has to do something about these Christians. And you can understand this, in a way, from the pagan perspective. The gospel of Jesus was an affront to the goddess of the city, Artemis. The gospel of Jesus said this is false. Ephesus was the chief economic center of all of Asia Minor, it's modern-day Turkey. And uh, the temple of Artemis was at the center of that city. That temple had been built around a meteorite. There was a black stone there in the center of that temple. Uh, A meteorite had fallen, and long before the writing uh, of the New Testament, this temple had been built because they believed Artemis, the moon goddess, had shown special favor on them, as evident through this visitation, the meteorite. Selling in the marketplace required sacrifice in that temple. If you wanted to have a shop in the center of town, it had to be connected to that temple. There were uh, rows and rows, vestibule upon vestibule of shop around that temple. The butcher, the meat market was there. If you wanted to buy meat, That meat had been a sacrificial victim to the goddess Artemis there. The temple served as a bank. So if you wanted to exchange money, it had to go through uh, the temple of Artemis and work in the government. If you wanted to be a civil servant, you had to be a servant of Artemis. The church obviously could not participate in that temple life. And... No doubt, because of persecution, that church drew together. It drew together regardless of ethnicity. So there were people there from 
tribal groups around Asia Minor. There were Greeks. There were Roman colonists. There were Jews. And this church was drawn from all of those people. And having a, a new common identity bound that group together. Some years later, the Lord led Paul to give them an encouragement in this identity because it was hard to live there as a Christian. Day by day, it was just hard to eat as a Christian in Ephesus. And so the central theme of Paul's letter is the refocus of identity in Jesus Christ. And we praise the Lord that he gave this letter because we also, and the church always, has needed this encouragement in our identity as members of the kingdom of Jesus. Now, after his uh, opening salutation, we get to verse 3, chapter 1. Paul moves into one long, layered, expansive sentence of praise and proclamation. And in our Bibles, this, this sentence, it's in fact one sentence, covers verses 3 to 14. It's our whole passage for the day. It's one sentence. So not only is it the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament, it is the longest sentence in all of Greek literature by any author writing in Greek. This sentence, our passage today. In the sentence is a, a profound truth on which Paul builds the entire letter. It filters through the entire letter. Uh, this is an exciting sentence. It's, it's subordinate clause on subordinate clause, movement upon movement. It holds us off, gives us more and more information, bit by bit, leading, 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 to this cosmic reality in verses 9 to 10. This, he has made known to us, for he has made known to us, in all wisdom and insight, the mystery of his will according to his purpose. He has given us an epiphany very appropriate to our season. And this epiphany, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, is to unite all things in him. To unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. This is it. This is the plan. There's no other plan this is what was always intended. This is what has come to be to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So through the work of Jesus, the redemptive work of Jesus, God has secured his plans. He's drawn mankind into himself. He's undone the work of destruction that we brought on ourselves. The thing Adam and Eve unleashed and that every person lived into. He's undone. In the person of the incarnate Christ, God taking on human flesh, and then by means of the Holy Spirit indwelling, God has revealed the original plan. It's now known to unite creation to himself under his authority. So all of Paul's theology, whatever letter we're reading, hinges, depends on the centrality of this uniting. This is the heart of it. Now through this long sentence, even if you just glance at it, 
you keep seeing this very loaded prepositional phrase, in him, in Christ, in whom. We typically read the ESV translation here, and the ESV has seven forms of that, in him, in Christ. That original Greek sentence has 12. The ESV is very economical here. So in one sentence, 12 times the idea of being in Christ is brought forward. So clearly this is core. God chose us in Him. He set forth His plan in Him. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption. In Him, we have an inheritance. In Him, we believe. And in Him, we were sealed by the Spirit. So these repetitions, they're, they're sounding forth again and again and again the fact that we participate, participate in the plan for the fullness of time because we are joined to Christ. We're connected, unbreakably connected to Jesus Christ. Because we are unbreakably connected, we are always part of his plan, part of what he's doing. So I want to get at this mystery, because it is mysterious, by way of an analogy that Paul offers elsewhere, and Jesus himself uses. Because Jesus wants us and wants his people to understand this idea of being in him. And the, the analogy or the image is a plant. Sometimes it's a vine, sometimes it's a tree, but it's a plant. Jesus uses the image of a vine, which we heard in John 15, when he's discussing the idea of abiding or living in him. In Paul's thinking, uh, as he explains this elsewhere, the tree represents spiritual Israel. The invisible people of God, that, that spiritual reality of the family of God. And this tree grows uh, according to its design, so the tree itself, according to its design, but also as branches are grafted into that tree, what the tree is feeds into those branches and causes them to become fully part of that tree. So you could imagine the branch of a, a little thorny bush. Take that thorn bush branch, graft it into the vine. If you graft it into this tree of life, into spiritual Israel, it changes. Its nature changes to a whole new branch because its nature changes. No longer a thorny branch. It becomes part of the grapevine. This is what it means to be in Christ. We, thorny branches, prickly, grumpy, grumpy branches, we have been grafted into this family of God, the church, the invisible reality. How did this happen? By receiving his spirit. Holy Spirit of God, given to us, draws us in. And it's, the idea that whatever then is true of Christ becomes true of those in whom his spirit dwells. 
His Spirit changes their nature from the inside out. So, is Christ holy and pure? Yes, indeed. Those who are grafted into Him are becoming holy and pure. Does Christ have overcoming power? Those grafted into Him have access to overcoming power. And he begins and he ends this thought with praise because it's wonderful. This is a remarkable, life-altering, conception-altering, change-everything-about-you kind of idea. Uh, how can we not praise? So first, in verse 3, he praises God for what he's explaining. As we are in Christ, we have available to us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Praise. So what does that mean? That we have every spiritual blessing. He has blessed us in him with every spiritual blessing. Well, in the heavenly places, that's where God is. That's his space. Spiritual blessings are those things that come with the presence of God. Where God is, these things just are because they flow from Him. Things like joy, laughter, fellowship, peace, contentment, rest of soul, excitement, friendship, kindness, comfort, security, warmth, having a sharp mind, like working properly, things working well. All the good things, all the good things come from God. They come from the Father of lights. So they are where He is and they flow from His life. And Paul wants to make clear that we have those because of our identity. Because we are in Him, we are in Christ. And so we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places where Christ is. So, verse 5. Flowing from this, we have the blessing of security because we've been adopted as His sons and daughters. To be adopted as the child of the Almighty God how can there be insecurity there? We have his fatherly kindness, his gentleness, his peace, his compassion. We have his comfort. Whenever things are unsteady, we have his strong, loving arms embracing us. We're safe. We're kept. We're held. Because we have been adopted as his sons and daughters. Then as verse 7 says, we have... Redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Which means we have peace with God. As I shared with the kids. The frown on sin has fallen. It's fallen here. And so we have His favor. We have forgiveness and peace with Him. We have His delight. We can draw life from Him because we've been cleansed by Him. 
And we can embrace all the good things that He's made. And we can offer those good things to others because there's not a threat of them running out. We do not have scarcity because with Him there is abundance, love, everlasting, love ever giving. We don't have to clutch. We are always able and ready to offer that. The gifts that He gives, we can give away. We can bear the fruit of love. As fruitful branches in the Lord Jesus, there's always more love. There's always more goodness to offer. And so as fruit bearers, we can be generous. So we're freed to love well. And we have purpose. We have security. We have joy and delight and forgiveness. And we have purpose. We have, verse 5, we have been destined to live for the praise of his glory. To be holy and blameless in his sight. That means as we enjoy him and we live out our design, the design that he has shaped in us, God is pleased. Doing the things he's equipped you to do, being the you he made you to be and is shaping continually, that gives him honor and glory because you're his. We bear his name. His name is on us. And so when we live out the design he's given us, who he is is shown, it's reflected, gives him honor. And he's pleased. And we enjoy the the goodness and the light heart of having no grounds for blame. Because, uh, Because we are forgiven, we can live blameless. It doesn't mean we won't sin. We will sin. I like the honesty of children. Yes, this week, we have all done it. But because we can acknowledge it, And because we can embrace the forgiveness of God, we do not live under condemnation. There is no grounds for blame. This is the power that we have in confession. uh, We we must lay hold on. Is that when we confess our sins, when we acknowledge that we've done the thing, the ground for blame, that's Satan's accusation, the voice of darkness that would accuse, is canceled. I've admitted it. I've said it. So, talk all you want, I am free. Take advantage of confession. Confess your sins one to another. You don't have to confess to me or priest. To one one to another. Bring those things to the light, and the ground for accusation is canceled. That's what it means to be blameless. There's nothing to blame you about. It's powerful. It's a blessing given to us because of our place in Christ. So now again, we have these blessings because we've been chosen, because of his great love and grace. If you're in the tree, you're in the family of God, he wants you to be there. It is not an accident. There is no accident here. In this room, there's no accident. So much did he want your inclusion in him. Verse 4 says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. 
The church is the realization of God's design. It's the realizing of his plan. The plan that was from all time. We heard from Deuteronomy. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number, not because you were a big impressive people, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. The next sentence. It's not because you were um, good or impressive. It's not because you were more righteous. In fact, you were a stubborn, stiff-necked people, he says. But it's because the Lord loves you. Because he loves you. That's the beginning and that's the end of it. He loves you. Now, following those faithful in Israel, Paul celebrates that this creation of a people as a treasured possession is now extending. It's not just Israel, ethnic Israel, and spiritual Israel within that. It's extending. It includes people of every tribe, nation, and tongue. Verses 11 to 14. It is according to God's secret purposes that everyone who has received the gospel has been destined and appointed for life for the praise of his glory and our confidence increases because we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's where our confidence rests. The seal of the Holy Spirit, not on our good behavior, but on the gracious blessing of God. So I want to be clear about what I think the primary purpose of this very long sentence is. God has won, and you are included. God has won, you are included. The point is about his purposeful grace, and it's to give encouragement to each and every Christian. The point of the, the whole letter, it's written for believers. It's written to give them assurance, to give them upbuilding. And so it's right, it's fitting for Paul to remind them of their identity and to point to God's intentional pursuit of them. Some people struggle when they read in the scriptures about God's choosing. But this is a troubling doctrine. But pay attention to how it is used. It is always used in this way. It is always a word to believers, those who have already placed their faith in the Lord Jesus, to assure them of God's loving intentions towards them. Choosing is a message of assurance. Are you in the family of God? It's because I want you. I want you. So were you born into a Christian family? Or were you given the privilege of hearing the gospel, whether in that family or you heard it later? Do you have comprehension that God came in Christ Jesus and took on human flesh? Do you understand that? Do you understand that you can orient your life around the Creator? That your life can, can be filled with the goodness of God? Do you understand that? If so, that is not an accident. Even your understanding the gift of the gospel to you. Not an accident. Being born into a Christian family. Not an accident. 
hearing the gospel, being able to respond, not an accident. God has intended you to know all these things. Verse 13 suggests your part is to believe the gospel. That's your part. Yield to the love of God that he's made known to you. So we're hearing this gospel right now. The gospel is being declared. And its message is that we are in Christ. And that this is where our freedom is. So you don't have to craft an image for yourself. This is especially so for young people, but, but I find uh, even older people struggle with trying to create an image, trying to create an identity. You don't have to chart out a successful life. You don't have to pick a set of traits or look at a celebrity and try to live into that. You don't have to come up with your own list of successes and try to walk into that. You don't have to because you're in Christ. You have everything. You have everything. You are beloved. You are delighted in. God Almighty wanted you. He made you for himself. He knows all about you, the good and the ugly, and he loves you because he does not see the ugly. He sees his design perfected in you. His specific design for you, perfected. That's what he sees. So when he sees you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the you he made you to be and that you are becoming and will be forever. That's what he sees. And because you are in Christ, joined to the Almighty God, the approving love of the Father is always on you. When we hear the Levitical blessing, you know this familiar blessing, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. When we hear that, it's said as a prayer, may, but it has been secured. You have it. It's a prayer with complete assurance. That's why it's a blessing. It's guaranteed, secured by Jesus Christ. When the Lord looks upon you, it's with a delighted countenance. It's with peace. It's with favor and grace. So you, the real you, is not under threat. You are not in danger from any person or force. You are secure. And it doesn't matter if people don't like you. Because they won't. There's always going to be some people that don't like us. It's a hard reality. <laughs> I didn't like it when it really hit. It doesn't matter if people don't like you. God in heaven likes you. Your God and Father has you secure. And all the blessings of the heavenly places are yours. So now... Concluding, this is the life 
and the goodness to which we call others who are not in Christ. The sanctity of life movement, it, it is, it's not just to increase the number of people existing. Existence is not the goal. We desire that all might live, truly live. Not just be alive. That in itself is a great gift. But we want all to know the love of God in Christ. Ministry to women in crisis pregnancy. Ministry to their babies. Ministry to those who are deemed unwanted, unvaluable by portions of our society. Ministry at the end of life. All of that is animated by love for God and a desire that all of those might know the eternal love of God that he offers. Effectiveness in our ministry, in any ministry, will depend on knowing that truth ourselves. Knowing that we have the love of God everlasting. We have abundant life in him. And so we can work from the security of our identity in Christ. Let's pray. Father, it is a wonder what you have done. We do. Our hearts are lifted to praise you. That you have given us such a place. Such significance. Such meaning. By including us in your very life. Lord, we pray that as you have engrafted us and you're changing us, now we are becoming as you are, holy and pure and just, that we would bear fruit, fruit that will last. Would you so transform us that we look like you and bear true testimony to what you're like. In the name of Jesus.